Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Ann Miller and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Anne. My fact is that Genoa Airport has relaxed its liquid ban, but only for pesto. <laughs> I wouldn't even say pesto was a liquid. It's more like a soup, isn't well, it? Well, soup is oh. a liquid. You're not allowed to take soup through, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is one group of people that you don't want to haggle with. It's probably airport security. So if yeah. they say, don't bring it, I wouldn't. I went through airport security this time, and I went to the passport guy, and the guy said, have you got a problem? And I think he was trying to be nice, but he had a Glaswegian accent, and he sounded like he was trying to invite <laughs> me outside for a fight. Well, so, <laughs> I said, you got worries. a problem, mate. <laughs> Did he then say politely, do you want to take this outside? To <laughs> and then he politely to... smacked me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> but the pesto campaign. So basically, this airport was confiscating about 500 jars of pesto every few months and decided it was gone too far. And so this is sort of, it's a charity thing, really. It's a campaign called Pesto is Good. You're allowed one 500 mil jar of pesto um, and you buy a 50 euro cent stamp, which will let you take it on board. And they scan it through the same machine that medicine and breast milk goes through. And so is this a tourism thing where they feeling a financial knock well i think partly because they're known for pesto in that area so like it's nice to bring but also i think it's slightly and it's a charity thing so the money goes to a company called the flying angels foundation which brings in kids from the developing world who need tough operations um but a similar thing happened in city airport um they were seizing an awful lot of marmite so this summer they did a marmite amnesty where you could trade in your big jar for a small pot marmite's an interesting liquidy one Is it a liquid? Well, it is, unless you bash it really hard and then it turns into a solid because it's non-Newtonian. That's not true, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So Um, all we need to do is invent this non-Newtonian liquid to be applied to things like bottles of water and you can give it a smack before you get to immigration. It goes in as a solid block. Bring in a block of ice. You have to keep Why don't you just bring in a massive block of ice in a bottle? So you can do that. Do you know that if you freeze freeze your water and you bring in a bottle of ice, then they will let you bring it through? I think actually some will and some won't. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. There's actually an interesting thing with... um, airports confiscating things a lot of airports don't have the same rules so in some airports lipsticks count as a liquid and some they count as a solid it's so weird what you can and can't bring onto planes i was reading this year that uh the tsa in america confirmed via their instagram that you're allowed to bring live lobsters on as part as of your carry-on luggage well they're not liquid that's true so humans are quite liquid by that logic so why should we be allowed we're 70 percent water Oh yeah. So uh, why are we allowed? Why are we allowed? On? Because <laughs> someone gives us a slap before we go through the immigration. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing is, your live lobster presumably likes living in water. So how do you keep it alive without bringing the water in? Yeah, yeah you get them twenty tiny waters and then you put it together. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. You put it in pesto. Yeah. <laughs> the photo in question on the Instagram that they uploaded was of a twenty-pound lobster. It's ginormous, wow. and it was allowed on because lobsters are allowed on. They're just wow. put in the overhead carry storage. Um, um, do you know that the TSA, their, their Instagram is crazy popular. It's got 780,000 followers. And Rolling Stone uh, named it the fourth best Instagram account in the world, beating NASA. Okay, and no Beyonce. NASA, Beyonce, and the TSA, TSA are TSA, the top so TSA, four. No, TSA are the top. So it's um, Kim Kardashian, Nat Geo, somebody I've forgotten, then TSA, then Beyonce, then NASA. God, wow. poor, poor somebody who you forgot it. They've worked so <laughs> <Sorry>. hard. <laughs> They've made it like, to the top three of all favorite. time. It's probably Justin Bieber. What a slam. Um, <laughs> I'm really sorry, number three. Um, but so their account is amazing. So they confiscate nine guns a day 
in American airports. Most of them are loaded. And they, this, on this Instagram, they basically the Instagram is pictures of stuff that's been confiscated and their dogs. It does very well on the internet. But things they've taken include uh, live eels, a live grenade, a knife hidden inside an enchilada, a medieval mace, a dagger hidden inside a replica of the Eiffel Tower, and a chihuahua that sneaked into its owner's bag when they weren't looking. Wow. Aww. You know when they started banning liquids on planes, uh, they weren't shorted about breast milk at first, and they quite quickly decided that breast milk should be the one exception, which it is. But it used to be the case that women were sometimes asked to prove that it was their own breast milk by drinking it but they all a lot of them said it was disgusting so one woman said it was embarrassing and disgusting having to drink my own breast milk I wonder if it goes back in and just refills I don't know how that works <laughs> not directly in terms of the body I think it spoils it I think there was an article a while ago with someone who got me made to do that and was like but if I do that like it won't all keep like in it I think she'd be on a business trip or something and they made her taste it all and she, but then it spoils and you can't keep it so what's the whole point so when they first started banning things they originally banned pens um, for the first couple of weeks uh, on the grounds that the ink they contained was a fluid. Yeah, makes sense. How come they were allowed back on? I think if your pen has more than 100 millilitres of ink in it, then you've probably <laughs> got the wrong pen manufacturer. Yeah. It could be one of those novelty life large pens that you bring in. Oh, I just, I'm signing a massive cheque for someone. I need this enormous pen. And then they also stopped people from bringing phones on for a while. And so many people um, were upset about that, that people were switching their Paris or Brussels flights from London at a rate of 10 a minute. Oh, yeah. They lost loads of money, um, British Airways, didn't they? They yeah. lost like a million dollars in a really short amount of time. Oh, 50 million. 50. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because people are so desperate to have their phones for just a one-hour plane journey. It's not a long trip from London to Paris. No. And you can't use your phone in the air. No. But maybe if you had a BlackBerry, you could um, kind of draft some emails. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Or play, play on, Snake. Yeah, play Snake. Snake was huge back then. Snakes on a plane. Is, <laughs> uh, um, I was reading about things that have been left at airports this year. Mm. So um, the first is a headstone that was found uh, that had the inscription, you will always be remembered, never forgotten. That was left at an airport. <laughs> uh, that was at Dublin Airport that they accidentally left the never forget uh, headstone. There's also uh, a toilet seat, a cistern, human ash, false teeth and glass eyes so that's all from the last few years did you say a toilet seat and a sister yeah that sounds like someone on a gap year who's heard the facilities in indonesia are really bad and they've brought (laughs) i'll just bring my own toilet it's fine yeah carrying around with them well speaking of toilets and airport again just news from this year involving airports and toilets um there's a airport in tokyo that for a few months of this year provided toilet paper for anyone on the toilet Uh, for not only themselves, but then a separate toilet system that provided paper for their smartphones. So you'd wipe your bum and then your smartphone. No, no, no. (laughs) Then you wipe your smartphone with the toilet paper. (laughs) No, so you would have one toilet roll for your bum and then another toilet roll for your smartphone, a smaller mini roll, because they were worried that so many people use their phone now on the toilets that they're getting all sorts of dirty bacteria on them and then that goes onto their head when they hold it onto. So this is just a little bit of toilet roll to just wipe your smartphone down once you're done on the toilet. You can't fold that toilet paper and make it smaller. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that it has been scientifically proven that the Beatles were an average band who didn't really influence music. Outrageous. 
proven by whom? What it's are you just, talking about? It's just outrageous. Well, I'm mostly saying this just to wind that up. <laughs> um, but this is um, a real study. It was done by a biologist called Armand Laroy, and he's from the Imperial College London. And what he is, he's an evolutionary biologist, and he plotted the 50 years of hit singles from the US Billboard charts into a computer program that models evolution and found out which song was influenced by which song. He found out that the Beatles are just kind of an average band who didn't really influence that many people. Oh, yeah. And really, around that time, it was more the Who and the Rolling Stones that did the influencing, and overall, it's more hip-hop music. So is this sort of changes in musical style? Like kind of that. Changes in the direction of where music was going? Yeah, was kind of. So what they did was they got 30-second snippets of music and they put it into the computer program and the computer program could tell the difference between different musical properties like instruments used or chord patterns or whatever and they looked to where they might have got that idea from okay. in an evolutionary way. Okay. Mm. But I think it's an interesting point, isn't it? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, think... I mean, because if you, like, you're more likely to find bands that say Beatles are an influence to them than you are not, I yeah. would say. So I think what we're saying is all those bands are wrong. <laughs> I know, who knew? I think this guy did acknowledge that uh, the Beatles were still part of that revolution in American music. It was just like the Rolling Stones and the Who seemed to create more of a change. And he also did acknowledge the very obvious truth that because the Beatles were heard so widely by so many people, even if a change was coming in music that influenced them, they were then the ones who influenced so many more people because they were just so popular. Bob Dylan, I can't remember the exact quote, but Bob Dylan said that the Beatles changed America completely. They knocked America into a, basically a revolution of culture. And Bob Dylan and the Beatles had a bit of an awkward relationship though, didn't they? Like John Lennon loved Bob Dylan and, you know, was inspired by some Bob Dylan songs to write things like Norwegian Wood and to go a bit deeper. But Bob Dylan, I think people think, wasn't really influenced by the Beatles at all and yet now has written one of his best new songs on his new album is called Dear John or something. It's a really moving song about John Lennon. Is it? Yeah. So um, Armand Leroy, who is the guy behind this study, or one of the guys behind this study, uh, he's also one of the guys behind a thing called darwintunes.org. And this is a website um, from a few years ago where they would play you some music and then you say whether you liked it or whether you didn't like it and they keep doing that and then eventually they hope to evolve the perfect bit of music that everyone liked. Mm. Uh, so again, it's a kind of evolution through music. So I'm going to play you um, some of this and see what you think about this. So, so this is a song that in theory all of us in this room should like. Um, well, I'll start off doing something that was from 150 generations. So 150 times people have said, I like this, I don't like this. And it kind of evolved into a certain kind of music. So this is this. I mean, it's not bad for something played on a Nokia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not impressed. It's well, a, no. It sounds like a <laughs> Okay, so what I'll do now is I'll play you something from 8,700 generations. Uh -huh. So okay. this has gone through much more evolution. So this, in theory, should be much more nice to the ear. See what you think of this. Exciting. I still feel like it's not quite at Beatles level <laughs> of songwriting genius. Yeah. Well, pop music is repetitive. Yeah, That's that true. definitely was. 
Um, I found a few um, interesting connections between Beatles and comedy. Um, okay. So this is uh, this is an interesting thing to me and perhaps comedy fans out there. There was a team called Beyond. I can't imagine any comedy fans are listening to this podcast. No, yeah, that's true. So I'll do a bit of explaining. Uh, there used to be a um, group called Beyond the Fringe, starred Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, Jonathan Miller, Alan Bennett. They were the big awakening of comedy in the 1950s in Britain. Did a lot of satirical stuff, kind of kind of the birth of satire, some would say. And uh, the applause that was used at their show for their recording was taken by the producer, George Martin, who did all of the Beatles stuff, and he put it to the beginning of Sgt. Pepper. So if you know the song Sgt. Pepper's, when there's that, um, let me introduce to you the actor, no, no, there's lots of applause going on. That's from Beyond the Fringe in Isn't the 1950s. It? Yeah, oh, it's a wow. comedy applause going on. So this year it's been the 50-year anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That's right. Do you know that Adolf Hitler is on the cover of that album? Mm. So they have, if you know the iconic album, yeah. there's loads and loads of faces. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't have Jesus on there, uh, and they didn't have Gandhi, uh, but they do have Adolf Hitler. Okay. Do they? Really I don't there? remember him being on there. Well, is he this, in disguise? He is a little bit. He's behind the Beatles. <laughs> he's completely behind, obscured. Completely obscured. Um, How do you know he's there? This is according to the guy who made it, who's called Sir Peter Blake. Yeah. And I don't know if he's joking or not, uh-huh. but he did say that when you look at the photographs of the outtakes that they were doing at the time, you can see that Hitler was there. Um, but actually, when they did the final picture, he was hiding behind the Beatles themselves. Oh that does sound a bit familiar, actually. Yeah. Oh, God. They, should, so. they need to do, you know, when they do sort of like weird ultrasound scans on great works of Renaissance art and they find another <laughs> Mona Lisa underneath the Mona Lisa. Oh, no. They need to do that to the album cover. Yeah. yeah. It could be also of people under that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was reading about how people, sometimes it said that John Lennon created sort of flipping sound round when he threaded up his real player the wrong way round. Yeah. Actually, it was there before, but they popularised it. And apparently, uh, George learned his solo backwards for I'm Only Sleeping, then they reversed it in the real recording. It's kind of cool if he did that. True, very cool. He recited the words backwards? No, and the solo on the guitar. Oh, really? Which, if true, is quite cool. Because with sound editing now, things like splicing, cutting, moving around is really easy, but then it was all literally cutting up the, the film yourself and moving it. So it's yeah. kind of like that. So... Um, when they did a take of Strawberry Fields Forever, John Lennon wanted part from one take and part from a different take. Mm-hmm. And so they, but um, they'd be recorded at different tempos and different pitches. So they had to try and sort of merge the two because otherwise it can't just switch halfway through from like yeah. different keys. Yeah. The reverse technique thing is really interesting because they do that in comedy films as well, mm-hmm. particularly for slapstick movies. They do it for when the slapstick stunt is so outrageously harsh. Yeah. They start it backwards. So say, for example, um, in Guest House Paradiso, they slam in two sharp forks into Mm. Adrian Edmondson's nostrils. So you see the hand go whang and just hook his nose right up. And you couldn't do that. Even with rubber, it's such a tight precision thing. Oh, I see. But you can can pull them out. So So Adrian Edmondson had to learn his lines backwards. No. Say it to the screen, and then they remove it, and then when you flip it the other way around, it goes in, and then his lines are forwards. Um, there was another music study I was reading about that was done quite recently, which was a study that was done in Spain, which looked into how pop music has changed, and if just to kind of satisfy, I guess, our parents' generation, it found that it has got 
too loud and it all sounds the same now. So <laughs> a study found that. A, st- a study found this. They analysed 464,000 songs from 1950s to 2010 and they looked at like the diversity of note combinations and they looked at different chord progressions and when they changed keys and stuff like that and they found that the melodies of songs today are all more similar to each other and that they don't have as many changes within them, that the timbral palette employed is less, so that's the different kind of instruments in the olden days. You'd have some trumpets and you'd have an organ suddenly and you'd have a triangle but right. now it's just you know a lot of it's more electric are we and necessarily saying that that is worse or better or they certainly weren't because they yeah. are objective scientists proper scientists you see but i am so what you could say is that they really tried lots of different things over the years and now we've found something that really works and it's taylor swift's new song you could say that yeah. we're currently breaking all records on youtube guys is it only half of them are me <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that when the first pilgrims went over on the Mayflower, one of them brought 139 pairs of shoes with him. (laughs) Um, So this is the voyage of the Mayflower, which was in 1620 when uh, a bunch of pilgrims went over and they landed in America and they set up the first permanent settlement in New England. And so obviously extremely famous and it's the Pilgrim Fathers. And yeah, they actually were not very well prepared to go and take over a new, totally unexplored, really, land. Well, it sounds like they're prepared if they're going to do a lot of walking. Mm. I'm not even sure they were practical walking shoes, I've got to say. Really? Um, It was 126 pairs of shoes and 13 pairs of boots. And to be fair, he was a shoemaker. It was a guy called William Mullins. <laughs> Maybe he thought he was going to sell them to the locals. I don't know. But, I mean, oh what God. else is he going to bring with him? Yeah. Like, he's not going to bring sausages with him, is he? Yeah. He's a shoemaker. <laughs> he's a shoemaker. <laughs> Actually, there were over, there was around 130 passengers in total mm-hmm. on board. So a pair of shoes for each. So maybe he was thinking business terms. But the rest of them didn't go barefoot. They just all brought the sensible one pair, one spare pair. Um, But yeah, they weren't very well prepared. They didn't bring kind of useful things like kind of fishing lines or a plow. But yeah, some other people brought a trumpet. uh, Someone brought a drum. Someone brought a complete history of Turkey. So these were sort of almost gentlemen, these Mm. people. So they wanted to take stuff that they valued, which wasn't necessarily the super useful stuff that a labourer would be able to work with. Do you know there were two babies born on the Mayflower? One was born when they docked in America and one was born at sea. Um, and they named him Oceanus. That's so nice. I was actually reading into Oceanus. I so would pronounce that Oceanus. Oceanus. <laughs> <laughs> so Oceanus Hopkins yeah. was his name. Um, had he have kept his mother's maiden name, he would have been called Oceanus Fisher, which is quite nice. That's it's ocean nice. and fish. Nominative determinism. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, Oceanus didn't live too long. Um, he, he died probably six years into life. They're not. They're not fully sure. Um, but his father, Stephen Hopkins, has an interesting story because he was part of the crew on the Mayflower, um, but he was also on a boat that tried to settle in the New World 10 years earlier uh, in Jamestown in, of Virginia. Mm. And on his way there, the boat got wrecked off the coast of Bermuda and he got stranded there with a bunch of other fellow passengers for several months. And the story of that rescue um, that brought them back um, was what? William Shakespeare says he based The Tempest on. Oh, no way. Yes. Or it's, it's speculated he based it's speculated it on. It's speculated he did. Um, but they're, they're questioning whether even one of the characters as well was named after Stephen Hopkins, yep. o- Oceanus's dad. Mm. 
Stephanus, um, because there's Stefano in The Tempest and supposedly Stephen Hopkins was one of Shakespeare's neighbours, supposedly lived in the same area as Shakespeare. So quite a famous family by yeah, by quite, default yeah. and situation. Quite a lot of adventures for one guy. Like, yeah. Yeah. And he worked with John Smith as well of Pocahontas fame. So that You're was kidding. Jamestown. Well, that was because he was a guy who went to Jamestown 10 years earlier, whatever. So yeah, he was working with John Smith to try and set up their colony there. Do you think so, he had like a mission to like, get in as many movies as possible? Like, yeah. Before movies were a thing. Yeah, good point. He's like, you know, those actors that you get that are in basically every movie. Yeah, like they've just got the one line or whatever. He's a bit like John Goodman, who's in every good movie. Like he was, for ages, whenever there was a best picture, he was in Argo and he was in um, The Artist and he was in everything, wasn't he? But never had a main part. Do you know, James, that is unbelievably weird that you've just said that because... A John Goodman was on board the Mayflower. No, is it the same guy? Yeah, he's much older than he looks. Oh, really? He's got really good at moisturising. Oh um, my god! There were also I was just looking at the names. There were some other good names because they were pilgrims. They were religious. A lot of them, so they named their children strange things. Like there was someone called Remember. There was someone called Resolved, and someone called Humility. And then there actually were... Remember they left him in the departure <laughs> lounge, <laughs> Dublin Airport. Um, there was William Brewster, who was one of the most famous people who went across and became an elder in the community he brought his children who were called true love and wrestling yeah wrestling i, I saw that that's wrestling. so cool wrestling brewster was yeah. his name such a good name that's something straight out of Lockstock or something can i just say dan you are about to have a baby soon yeah wrestling is a strong name wrestling's an incredible wrestling schreiber yeah yeah that or, is good yeah or oceanus is also a <laughs> very strong option <laughs> Constantly correcting the pronunciation of his name forevermore. It's actually anus. <laughs> so they were trying to um, escape religious tolerance or intolerance, depending on which way you look at it. They were basically trying to escape the Anglicans mm-hmm. uh, with the Puritans. But of the hundred, just over 100 people on the boat, more than 60 of them were Anglicans. So they were trying to escape them, but they were basically with them on the boat the whole way. Uh, and they called themselves the saints, the Puritans, mm. and they called the Anglicans strangers. Uh-huh. Uh, but the crew on the Mayflower called the Puritans psalm-singing puke stockings. <laughs> In a flattering way? Did that mean something <laughs> different? I'm not sure how that can be flattering, um, puke stocking. I can only imagine that they had puke-coloured stockings. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought I was it was thinking, seasickness. Yeah, because didn't Mayf- the Mayflower left a bit later than they meant to because there was another ship called Speedwell and I think they were, they'd both done part of the journey but then Speedwell got a leak and so its passengers went on to Mayflower because they wasted time and meant the Mayflower had to go through sort of choppier water and storm season that they'd been trying to avoid. So you probably mm. would want a puke stocking if you were on the... So do you think maybe they were just puking a lot? That's why they were called puke stockings. Probably into their stockings. Ah. <laughs> the sick bag it's of the, the 17th bag. century. Yeah. So um, it's the 400th anniversary of the of the trip in 2020, and I was reading that in order to celebrate it. There's a company that is creating a virtual reality. Um, so you put on the VR thing, and oh, it's cool. going to place you on the boat, and it replicates the whole Aww. journey. So they're going to make it sail from Plymouth to Plymouth. So you can do some virtual puking into your stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I wonder if that's an element that they're going to add in the corner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that a new scientific paper on why horses only have one toe has been published. 
The author of that paper is called Brianna McHorse. McHorse. That's brilliant. It's not even a name. It's not a sounding that anyone's ever it's had before. It's a name. Before. It, it is a name. It is a name. It is a name that people have is had before. It? Yeah, in fact, if you go to McHorse.com, there's a man charting all the McHorses through history. <laughs> they say that they're all descended from John W. McHorse, who was born in 1819. Uh, oh, really? And no one's quite sure why he got called McHorse, because it doesn't seem like there were any McHorses before him. But according to one idea, um, he was in America and he was hanging out with a guy called Sam Houston, and, but he was called McHuse at the time. Mm-hmm. And Sam Houston said McHorse would be a better name for a Texan than McHuse. Okay. Oh. Mm. And so maybe the name came as a joke. Yes, and McHuse slash McHorse went on to have 12 children. So the name spread Spreads. like wildfire, <laughs> even in its first generation of use. And uh, if you go to McCourse.com, the guy who runs it, who is a McCourse himself, he... No one else is going to be running McCourse.com, <laughs> Dad they? might. It's a Saturday job. <laughs> he, uh, he has a spreadsheet of the genealogy and family tree of all the McCourses since that guy. And it's amazing how many McCourses you can get since 1819. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. a lot. It's quite but- cool to have a name where you can pinpoint when it came and then to see like tracing it back because there's tons of millers like you whereas yeah. if, it's, if you know you're if you're a McCorse the gods that you're related to that McCorse pray hard yeah. yeah McCorse does sound like it's a burger you can get in French McDonald's doesn't it it does yes. yeah. yeah it also sounds like if it means son of mm. um, then it sounds like you'd call someone McCorse as an insulting joke saying your mum obviously shagged a horse doesn't it? Because you're saying son of horse. I'm putting that forward as an alternative theory for the origin of the name based on no evidence. Don't, don't tell the guy that runs that website he'll be gutted. Yeah. So the paper that uh, McHorse published, Brianna McHorse, is Mechanics of Evolutionary Digit Reduction in Fossil Horses. So the thing to know about her is she doesn't study horses for a living. She is an evolutionary biologist and she's just been looking into why horses now have this one toe as opposed to five, which is what their ancestors might have had. Their ancestors might have had four on the front and three on the back, I think. Okay. Um, if you look at tapirs, that's what they have, which is like similar to an old kind of horse. And they reckon that basically it helps them to run faster um, because if you've got long, slim legs with just these one toes, it helps you to gallop. And the reason they had to do that is because they stopped living in the forest because there were no forests when the Ice Age hit America. So there were no forests. They had to live in the open, so they had to run away from predators. Mm. And so they needed really speedy legs. Mm. If horses had feet, like we have feet, so like literally a foot, would that be better for them? Or are they the ultimate? I think what we're saying is for what they evolved into, which was this large open pastures with no forest, this was the best that they could come up with, presumably. That's how evolution works. I think probably the more direct answer to your question is no. If a horse was randomly born with four human feet on the end of its legs, but, it would be at a disadvantage. But if it had human feet, it could wear a trainer as well, having to go to a blacksmith. Yeah. So it'd be more convenient. That's a really good point. And they don't yeah. make those bouncy Nike horseshoes, do yeah. they? Whereas they, they do make get trainers. Horses. Also, Fair. horses did evolve in America. So maybe when this guy came over on the Mayflower, he thought that he could sell his shoes to all these four yeah. footed. He's like, come on, guys, this is really going to help you out. But he said Brianna didn't. It's not she didn't set out to study horses, but she may have been drawn towards them. So there was a 2002 academic paper about nominative determinism, which is brilliantly called "Why Susie Sells Seashells by the Seashore: Implicit Egotism and Major Life Decisions," which mm. found that people disproportionately do tend to pick careers that mirror their names. So they have a larger proportion than you'd expect of Dennis's and Denise's in the dentistry industry. Ah, 
yeah. Although not everyone believes it, do they? There have been a few papers since that kind of think that maybe they slightly cherry-picked their data. That's true. I read that paper by happen. Albert Skeptical. He, um... <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to please, that guy. Uh, a great one. This is not nominative determinism, but I was watching um, Would I Lie to You last night, um, the comedy panel show, and David Hay, the boxer, was a guest on it, mm-hmm. and he named his son Cassius after Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Mm. But that means his son is called Cassius Hay. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, well, yeah. Rob Brydon got a big laugh on the show with that. <laughs> That's the way he tells them. Um, I just, that reminded me of a um, fact which is in our new fact book, which comes out this year, um, which is that on the US PGA, most golfers play with a glove to keep their hands from blistering. Um, but the one of the only players that doesn't use a glove is called Lucas Glover. Yes. Do you know, James, uh, just while we're talking sports, do you know who the new reigning champion of most bullseyes in a minute is for darts? Um, Phil Taylor? No. Um, if I name a load of dance players, will I get it? No, you, okay. you're in the wrong industry. Oh, is it Steve Backley, the javelin thrower? No. Robin Hood. It's Lee Mack, the comedian. Come off it. What? Yeah, Lee no. Mack. He set the record this year, It's uh, and he beat it by one mm. uh, for most bullseyes within a minute. And um, I learned this on a TV show called Would I Lie to You? Oh, was, it, but, yeah. was it true or was it a lie? It was true. How Out of interest, just so we know, um, how many of your facts this week have come from Would I Lie to You? Should we give them the credit? <laughs> if the, the whole end. thing's just that. Is it more or less than 20? Less. That's a lie. Yes. <laughs> Damn it. Points to James. <laughs> um, have you guys ever seen... You guys would have seen this because I put it on the Would I lie to you? Yeah, loads of times. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> How good was that whole Cassius Hay bit? <laughs> um, have you guys ever seen the feet of a newborn horse? No. They are incredible. So, guys, if you're listening at home, you've got to Google image this right now. Um, what they look like is... Um, I was trying to work out a good metaphor for them, actually, how to, for how to describe them. They look like kind of a cross between a squishy crab claw and an anemone with, like, a bit of cat's paw in it. And they're really slimy. And what it is is, uh, if the horse was born with its hoof fully exposed, it would damage the mother's birth canal as it came out. Ah. And so the hoof is covered in this kind of grotesque slimy anemone layer which stops it from being damaged and then it falls off as soon as the horse is born so the the way that some animals would do it is they would come out not quite fully formed so that it wouldn't do that but horses are in danger as soon as they're born because the mother spills uh, her birth fluids everywhere and immediately that alerts predators to the scent so the foal needs to be ready to run as soon as it pops out so it pops out and then it sheds this slimy layer of goo on its feet and then it gallops away but it's the most amazing thing if you see it you would never guess it belonged to a horse scary isn't it with animals like that it's almost like you're being born into the beginning moment of the hunger games like you're, <laughs> you're the platform comes up and there's a siren and you just have to survive yeah you're yeah. right that's your opening moment into life i've got something on um a racehorse okay mm-hmm. the greatest racehorse of all time mm-hmm. um he was called eclipse and was born in the 1764 solar eclipse around that time. And that's why they got the name. Uh, And he had to retire from racing because he won so often that no one would ever bet on any other horse. No way. And at the time, I mean, still, but at the time, horse racing was all about the gambling. Wow. Uh, And so he was so good. They just wouldn't let him race anymore. And he was extremely famous. Uh, Bits of his body after he died would kind of materialize like um, holy relics. 
<laughs> so there were nine authentic hooves of his turned into ink stands. Now, if he did actually have nine legs, then that could explain why he kept winning these races. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James, at Eggshaped, Anne, at Miller underscore Anne, Chazinski. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, and you can also go to our group account, which is at QI Podcast. You can also go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes. There's links to many things as well, our upcoming tour, our upcoming book. You can also join us on a Monday for our Facebook Lives. That's 5 p.m. UK, British, whatever time, London time. Just find London when it's 5 p.m. in London on a Monday. That's when we'll be there. And we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye.